This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Galatians chapter 6. Uh, just reading one verse in Galatians 6. Uh, verse 9. Galatians 6 and 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Doing good is wonderful, it's such a blessing. It's such an inspiring, fulfilling, honorable, helpful thing to do to others. And it's wonderful, so encouraging. You would think that the Apostle Paul would have no need to admonish us not to grow weary in it. You think that it's so good that you would never tire of it. But the fact is, inspiring as it is, fulfilling and honorable and helpful, we still grow weary in doing good. Sometimes it's demanding, emotionally and physically draining and tiring. You're doing good, can and will be abused by somebody. You will be taken advantage of at some time. At times your doing good will go unnoticed and unrecognized, unappreciated, and just simply taken for granted. And there will be people at times who will drain you, who will suck the very life out of you. And whenever they're finished and you have nothing else to give, they will walk away as if you never existed. And at those times, if you're not careful, you can grow weary. There will be people in whom you will spend endless hours and energy and even money sometimes, your finances. And at the end, for no reason you can think of, they will turn against you and say all manner of things evil against you falsely. And in those moments, if you're not careful, you can become very tired. And there may be times when you'll say, well, why bother? I don't need this. Why should I put myself through all this? I mean, people just use you and abuse you, and they just take off, and you're left to pick up the pieces. So why bother? Well, Paul tells us why. Because you shall reap if you do not lose heart. If you do not faint, as the King James says. No one did more good than Jesus. No one reached out to more people than Christ. No one gave more time and energy and commitment to people than Jesus. But where were they at his trial and his crucifixion? The Bible says they all forsook him and fled, even his very disciples. 
He had put three and a half years into their lives. And at his most crucial moment, after having given everything, they forsook him and they fled. Where were all those people that received healing and deliverance? Where were the 5,000 that he fed supernaturally? Where were they all? They all left him, didn't they? Where were those people who just literally the week before shouted their hosannas? Where were they? Even Calvary for Jesus literally became a God-forsaken place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, in spite of all of that, he never grew weary in doing good. Even on the cross, he was still doing good, wasn't he? He forgave his executioners. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He pardoned the thief on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He made provision for his mother. Said to his mother, but John, behold your son. And so even in his last breaths, he never fainted. He never lost heart. He still was doing good. Did he reap in due season? <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. And you and I and untold millions around the world are evidence that Jesus reaped a harvest in due season and is still reaping that harvest every single day. And so, let's share a little bit this morning about this. Let us not grow weary. How do you know when you're growing weary in doing well? What are the signs that you're tired of doing well? Well, first of all, you begin to feel sorry for yourself. Now, looking at all your religious faces this morning, none of you would ever feel sorry for yourself. Not like me. <laughs> I think every single one of us at some point or other has certainly felt sorry for ourselves. Hard done by. Elijah is a classic example, isn't he? The whole nation had gone into idolatry. The very king and queen on the throne had spread Baal worship the whole length of the land. 400 prophets of Baal alone, never mind other gods, they had raised up. And these were God's people, steeped in idolatry and paganism. And Elijah can take no more of it. And out of that whole nation, he stands up and he challenges it. He becomes God's spokesman the only one in the nation who stood up and challenged and spoke out <coughs> verbally. And you know how they had that wonderful situation in Mount Carmel where let the God who is God answer by fire and God spectacularly <laughs> vindicated 
the prophet and showed that he was the true God. And you would think after such a spectacular vindication where they actually saw fire coming from heaven and after he had killed the 400 prophets with the sword, you would think, would you not, that the whole nation would be on their knees repenting, but they didn't. And not only that, that Jezebel grew worse and threatened to kill him, to take his head off. And so he ran. He ran all the way down to Beersheba to the wilderness of sin. And there he was sitting under the Jupiter tree, Jennifer tree and he was really, really feeling sorry for himself, wasn't he? And he was having a bit of a pity party and he was complaining. Whenever we feel sorry for ourselves, we're very apt to complain, aren't we? But he says, God, it is enough. I've had enough. I've done everything. There's nothing more I could have done or could do. These people do not respect you. They do not respect the ministry you've given me. They are not listening. God, it is enough. I'm no better than my fathers. Take me home out of this. <laughs> he was really weary of doing good. Because in his heart, he felt this is going nowhere. Nothing has changed. In fact, if anything, it's even got worse. So all of my efforts are in vain. Nobody's hearing the word of the Lord. And God had to send an angel to him to encourage him and to refresh him and to tell him that his ministry wasn't over. They had kings to anoint and he had a prophet to appoint and there's more work for him still to do but he was weary he was tired and in that situation he really felt sorry for himself Moses is another example isn't it Moses was the one who <laughs> who went to Pharaoh uh, took his life in his hands all he had was a staff in his hand. And he went and demanded that Pharaoh let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and his neck was stiffened and he would not let them go. And then how God used Moses and that staff for 10 great plagues to come upon the whole nation of Egypt and each one was worse than the last and in the end, after the death angel had passed over and all of the firstborn of the Egyptians had died, in the end he relented and let them go. And they went and they had to cross the Red Sea. And again, God did a mighty miracle before their very eyes and they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and the Egyptians followed them and the water came in and drowned the Egyptian army. And you would think after that, surely these people would be appreciative. Surely they would understand that God is in control. Surely there would be nothing to complain about. But within days, they were murmuring and complaining that they had no water. And God said to Moses, take your staff and strike the rock and I'll supply them with water. And that's what he did, and that's what God did. And it wasn't a trickle. It was a mighty river that began to flow to, to quench the thirst of about two million people. 
So don't get the image that you get in the children's little Sunday school books of a little trickle coming out of the rock. That wouldn't do two million people. That was a mighty, mighty gush that came out. And then as they moved on further, they complained again. They wanted something to eat. And so God gave them angels' food, the psalmist called it. Manna from heaven, supernatural bread. Every morning it was there for them. All they had to do was pick it up and eat it. And you would think after that, surely, surely there would be no more complaining. But there was. They got sick of it. They got tired of it. And they moaned and complained and griped to Moses again. And Moses says, okay, I'll give you flesh to eat. And God brought great flocks of quail, billions of them, to cover the camp. <laughs> they began to eat the quails until they were sick of that also. And then they complained again about no water. Now you can imagine by this time, put yourself in Moses' position. Two million people complaining and groaning at you and blaming you. You brought us out of Egypt to die in this place. <laughs> if only we had a state in Egypt where had the lakes and garlic and the cucumbers. But look what you brought us to. And that's what they were doing. And then they says, we have no water. And God said, let me read it to you. In Numbers chapter 20. Let me just read this little portion. Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Now remember, this is the second time this has happened. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. First time he says, Strike the rock. This time he says, Speak to the rock. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Now remember, at this point, he's really tired. He's really had enough. And who could blame the man? Hear now, you rebels. <laughs> Warren Wearsby tells the story about this pastor. He had a, a deacon who, for years and years, gave him all kinds of trouble. And the deacon died, and the pastor had to bury him. And he chose as his text, and it came to pass that the beggar died. <laughs> Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the matter, water of Meribah, or contention, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Should have just spoke to the rock. He wasn't bringing water out of the rock. It was God. But you see, when you're weary and you're tired and you feel sorry for yourself, then you say things and do things that you wouldn't normally say and do. So Paul 
admonishes us, do not grow weary while doing good. And then, second thing is, you begin to, you begin to lose your focus. You begin to lose perspective. John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, is an example of this. Verse 13 of Matthew 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it now to be so, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the zenith of John's ministry. John knew from the day he was born that he was called to do what he was doing. He knew it absolutely, that he was the one who was to make straight the pass for the Messiah. He was the one who was to call the nation to repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord. And he knew that, and he was doing that successfully. Multitudes came to him, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they came, he called them a brood of vipers. Who told you to come? Bring forth fruits of repentance. I mean, he was a tough man. Even the very way he dressed, camel's hair, a big leather girdle, eating locusts and wild honey, honey, living out in the desert. I mean, he was the, <laughs> he was a typical prophet that we would imagine in our minds in the Old Testament. And there was no greater prophet, Jesus said, than John the Baptist. And so here is the pinnacle of his calling. He's baptizing the Messiah. You can see why he didn't want to do that. But Jesus says, no, he says, thus to fulfill all righteousness. Then Jesus goes, goes out and he goes into the wilderness. Those 40 days, he's been tempted of the devil. But look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Because sometimes I think we read these things and, and our eyes skim over them, but look a little deeper. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Now, just stop for a moment and think about that. And when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he went and visited him in jail. He sent a delegation to Herod, to witness for John, to speak up for him. No. No, no. He departed to Galilee. Now, could you imagine John at that moment? He's imprisoned because of that whole thing with Herod and Herodias and the daughter, all the, that whole business that went on. 
that cost John his life. Can you imagine John now thinking, and I'm, I'm sure he's just a human being, I'm sure he thought, well, where is everybody? Where is the Lord? I introduced him to the nation. I'm in jail. Did he not come and see me? I don't know, but I'm just surmising maybe in those moments he was beginning to feel this way. But if we look a little further at uh, Matthew 11. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Here he is, growing, grown weary in well-doing, incarcerated for his public stand against this wicked king. And Jesus goes on about his business preaching about the kingdom and preaching the message of repentance that John was preaching. And John gets so discouraged. He's so miserable. He loses his perspective, his focus. Did I do right? Did I get it right? Am I called? Was I the one to prepare the way? And he hears about all these miracles that are happening. And you think, well, that would convince him. But it didn't. It didn't. He's still wondering. He's doubting because of his situation, because he's weary and he's tired of doing well. Are you he that comes, or do we look for another? And so Jesus answers that. He said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet, for this is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you realize such a privileged position that we have today? John couldn't have spoke, or Jesus couldn't have spoke more highly of John than right there. And then he says, by the way, <laughs> but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so, let us not grow weary in doing well, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Jeremiah, Jeremiah was called to a people 
<laughs> of people who, God's people actually, who were so idolatrous uh, and so wicked. And Jeremiah was called to, uh, to speak for God and to stand up to this idolatry in the nation and warn them if they did not change their way that God was going to sweep them into captivity. And every day he warned them and warned them and they did not like it and they hated him and they beat him and they put him into a pit at one occasion and they laughed him to scorn. Now if you were a prophet and that was your calling to know that everything you said would be thrown in your face and nobody would believe you or wanted to believe you and would hate you because of it. Who wants to be a prophet? <laughs> it's not so romantic, is it? And they get weary and they get tired. And in verse 7 of chapter 20 of Jeremiah, I just may read this to you. He says, Oh Lord, you induce me, you entice me. You got me into this. And I was persuaded. You're stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke and cried out, I shouted violence and plunder because of the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. Lord, I'm tired of it. I've had enough. The whole nation is against me. And my words are falling at my feet. <laughs> so Lord, I hope you don't mind, but that's it. I'm finished. No longer will I be your prophet. <laughs> and who could blame him? Would we have done the same? But then he couldn't. But look what he says. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. <laughs> he got tired speaking it, and now he's getting tired because he can't speak it. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. He had to speak it again. Yes, they didn't listen. Yes, they went into captivity. But he discharged his calling. And God honored him for that. So be not weary in doing well, for in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that a lovely verse? Hebrews eleven six. God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Psalm 58 and 11. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. And Jesus in Mark 9, 41 says, Even if it's just a cup of cold water you give to one in my name, you will not lose your rewards. Title of this message this morning is Your Due Season is Coming. Sarah and Brian had to wait a long time for their due season. Many heartaches and hardships and disappointments and tears. 
for their due season came. This morning before I preached, you saw the evidence. Little baby Isaac, little son of promise, son of laughter. (laughs) There was times they weren't laughing. There was times they were crying. But when that little child came, they could laugh. Because God's promise, God's due season came true for them. Now God has many rewards for us, but they are contingent upon two things. Our due season and us not fainting, us not losing heart. One is in God's hands, one is in our hands. The due season is in God's hands. Nothing we can do about that. It's in God's hands. But what's in our hands? Not losing heart, not fainting. Our due season is in God's hands. One sows, one waters, but God gives the increase. Moses had to wait 40 years for his due season. Now, when he was 40 years old, he thought he was ready. He thought, that is my due season. I am now ready to be the deliverer of my people. For 40 years, he'd been brought up in the household of Pharaoh, a princess's son, mighty in the land, wealthy beyond words, knowledgeable in the customs and the language of the Egyptians, in a very influential position. Surely nobody better, and sure no time better than deliver the people when he's in his prime at 40 years old. And you remember how he saw that Egyptian assaulting a Hebrew and he killed the Egyptian and buried him. He's a deliverer. His time has come, he felt. I'm doing what God has put me in this position to do. But the next day he saw two Hebrews fighting and he intervened and he said, are you going to kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? (laughs) And he realized he had been caught on. He thought nobody knew. And he ran and he fled for his life. And for the next 40 years, in the backside of the desert, he looked after sheep for Jethro, his father-in-law. 40 long years. Until he's 80 years old. When you're 80, you're thinking to put your feet up, go into a nursing home. Huh? <laughs> Come on, that would you think most people? I'm nearly looking for one now, I'm not 80. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But he's 80. But now it's God's due season. And God gets his attention by the burning bush that was not consumed, and God spoke to him. And now he goes to Pharaoh. It's his due season. Now he's ready. He thought he was ready 40 years ago, but he wasn't. But now he's ready. Now he's ready. And God's going to use him mightily because it's God's due season for him. Joseph had to wait over 20 years. Over 20 years. 
But he went from being a prisoner of Egypt to being prime minister of Egypt in 24 hours. After over 20 years, in one day, from being a prisoner to being prime minister, because it was God's due season for him. And he did not faint. He had opportunity many times to faint, to lose heart, to give up, but he didn't. David was just a lad when Samuel anointed him to be king over Israel. Just a stripling. Just a young, gangly, young teenager. But he had to wait until he was 30 before he was anointed king over Judah. And then a little bit longer before he was anointed king over all Israel. He had a lot of stuff to come through. There's going to be a lot of things going to happen in his life. But his due season would come. Ten of those years he spent in exile when King Saul tried to kill him, hounded him all over the wilderness. Such was his insane jealousy and rage. But his due season came and he became the greatest king that Israel ever had. Disciples of Christ, for three and a half years, they walked with Jesus. There was a time that they thought it was their due season. Two of them requested, <laughs> when you set up your kingdom, I want to sit in your right hand, I want to sit in your left hand. They discussed among each other who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Imagine that. <laughs> Jesus was telling them he was going to die and they were discussing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They thought they were fit and ready. Here's the Messiah. Here's the king coming. Well, at last, we'll rid the nation of these pagan Romans who suppressed us all these years. And whenever Jesus sets up his kingdom, guess what? <laughs> we're going to be, have a front row seat. We're going to be right there. We've been with him all this time. We've been the ones who stood with him. But then came the time when the tide turned and Jesus wasn't popular anymore and the people were turning against him and the religious establishment desperately wanted to put him to death and they did and those disciples forsook him and fled and denied him and betrayed him They thought their due season had come sometime before this, but it hadn't. They weren't fit. They weren't ready spiritually or any other way. And Jesus knew that. But then comes the death Pentecost. And on the death Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind. And those early disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes out and preaches and a great harvest comes in. Now it's their due season. Now is their time. Now they're ready. This is what God has waited for. <laughs> Bible says that our times are in his hands. 
And so there's a due season coming for you. But it's in God's hands. It's in his times. Nothing we can do about that. Other than not faint. Not lose heart. You'll be tempted to. You'll feel like it. I have several times. I remember one time particularly in this place. I'm going back years ago. I was about to hand over the keys to whoever would take them because I had had enough. And one Wednesday night, Sally sat me down and she talked straight to me. And she gave me a few home truths. And thank God she did. Amen. And I said to her, do you know what? You're absolutely right. You're right. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I'll never look back after that. So there are occasions, and there will be in your life, when you'll be so weary and tired, you just want to give up. I've had enough. But you don't. You keep on going. Because God has got a due season for you. So we must not lose heart. Hebrews 10, 36, For you have need of patience after you have done the will of God. Did you get that? After you have done the will of God, that's when you need the patience so that you might receive the promise. <laughs> James 1 and 4, Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. <laughs> we're not very good at patience, sure we're not. Oh dear. Put us behind a wheel. That tests your sanctification, doesn't it? <laughs> Sitting in a big long queue and the, and the queue's moving on and the agent in front of you is fiddling and fittering and you know the lights is going to change before you get to next and you're so tempted. Sally and I was driving the other day and there's a coming out of the old Kilmer Road and you know the traffic's like there some days it's just chronic and especially if you're coming down the Lurgan Road you, you know the, it, may be, it may be a line a mile long you all know that and this wee woman in front of us coming out of the Kilmer Road at the roundabout she decided well I'm just going to jolly well go and she edged out in front of a big lorry and that guy in the lorry he you know, he didn't just beep the horn. He sounded that horn for about 10 minutes. He pressed that horn. You know, and then he tailgated her all the way down Main Street. His patience just had been worn out. We're not very patient, are we? Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Why does the scripture say that? Because God knows how impatient we are. And he's got to keep reminding us to be patient. When Jesus said to Jairus things like, only believe, do not fear. What he was really saying, do not lose heart. You've come this far. You've trusted me this far. Do not lose heart. And I'm sure Jairus was thinking, when the mourners come out and says, don't trouble the master any further, your daughter is dead. I'm sure Jairus said, if only that wee woman hadn't intervened and stopped Jesus. 
I know she got healed, and that's wonderful, but if she just, I mean, she's had this for years. She's not going to die. My daughter was dying. I'm sure he felt like saying, Jesus, come on. We'll deal with her later. My daughter's at the point of death here. <laughs> Do not lose heart, Jairus. Only believe. Don't be afraid. I'm on time. Everything's under control. Her due season's about to come. And it came. And she was healed. We're almost finished. Naomi. She had lost heart. <laughs> she said when she came back from the land of Moab, she said, don't call me Naomi because that means pleasant. Call me Mara, because that means better. I'm a better old woman, and I have every right to be. That's what she was saying. Because God sent me out full, he's brought me back empty. So I'm just better. <laughs> you can read that in the book of Ruth. That's what she was saying. <sighs> she had lost all heart. Her husband had died, her two sons had died in Moab. One daughter-in-law had deserted her. It was just Ruth left. She was a Moabite. She's coming back and she's broke. She's bitter. She's bereft. She couldn't be in worse state. She is so weary and tired that she's angry with God and she's bitter as gall. <laughs> Did God have a due season for her? Absolutely. But she had one thing going for her. She had a relative, a near kinsman, Boaz. And Boaz was a rich farmer. And all a Moabite could do in those days, because they weren't part of the covenant, they weren't of the household of Israel, all they could do as a, as a poor person as a, a stranger in the land, was just go and glean among the reapers when it was harvest time. That's all they could do, just pick up the scraps that remained. And she did that, and then Boaz saw her. And when Boaz saw her, he fell in love. He was smitten immediately. You know the story. He made inquiries and found out who she was and ended up marrying her. And what a wonderful, wonderful story it is, isn't it? What a beautiful story. Whenever they, well, you turn to the little book of Ruth. Just need to read this in closing. Joshua judges Ruth. The last chapter of chapter 4, read in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became nurse to him. And also the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. David became his grandfather. And if you read on down verse 18, we'll not go through all of that, but notice here, verse 20, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Turn me quickly to Matthew chapter 1. See, there was the, the lineage. But in Matthew chapter 1, Here's more or less that same lineage. In fact, I'll just read from verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. So this is sort of the history of the tribe of Judah. Judah begot Perez and Zerah and Tamar. And Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab. And Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon, notice this, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. And so Matthew is including the woman in the lineage here. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And so right in the very lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see little Ruth mentioned, the Moabite woman, <laughs> and Rahab the harlot. And Naomi, after all of her pain, and all of her bitterness, and all of her tiredness, and all of her weariness, and all of her feeling hard done by, <laughs> after all of that, God blessed her more than she ever could imagine. And through her, through that little Moabite daughter-in-law, and through her little grandson, her little grandson, then he became in the very lineage of Christ. What a due season for Naomi. Glory to God. So there's the confirmation shall reap. There's a consideration in due season and there's a condition if we do not lose heart. Hallelujah. And so this morning, beloved, keep on keeping on. <laughs> keep on pressing on the upward way. <laughs> I know there's going to be times when you'll shake your head and say, is it worth it? Yes, absolutely, because your due season is coming. Lord. And one day you'll be blessed and you'll look back and say, thank God I kept on keeping on. Thank God I didn't give up when the going was tough. Thank God when my feelings were telling me, lie down and quit, I didn't. Or if I'd lay down, I got up again and went on to the glory of God and your due season came. And for some of you, your due season is yet to come, but it is on the way. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all of the plans that you have for each of us. We thank you that they're good and they're perfect and they're acceptable because that's your will. We bless you for it. And so, Lord, we, 
wait with anticipation and expectation. We look forward, Lord, to what you will do. Our lives are in your hands and our timings are in your hands. So we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.